Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we just had a fantastic interview with Andrew and Jill Stewart from Yan Yan Gert West Farm. This farm is a leader in regenerative and holistic farming based in the Otway Ranges of southern Victoria in Australia. In the past 30 years, they've been planting agroforest systems such as shelter belts, riparian buffers, farm forestry and silvopasture on about 230 hectares, complementing their lamb business. They went from 3 to 20% tree cover without reducing their traditional crop productivity since they started, which is an incredible achievement. This episode is about an incredible farm that takes ag regenerative agriculture extremely seriously and where tree crops and trees have played a fundamental role. So tune in to find out more and I really hope you enjoy. Andrew, Jill, welcome on the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Dimitri. We're uh, really happy to be here and speak with you. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited to to delve into your your amazing farm. And if I'm not mistaken, you recently won an award, right? Quite an important award for Australian one. Is that is that correct? We we won the uh, Bob Hawke Landcare Farming Award, and Bob Hawke was a former Prime Minister of Australia. And in 1989, he elevated Landcare from a, a small estate organisation, which emanated in Victoria in southern Australia and he took it to the national stage and uh, 1989 and um, so that gave it a bit of leverage and some great national support to really kick land care off in Australia as a national organization and uh, wow. so we, we were fortunate enough to win that award um, last year. Wow that's incredible. Is, it, is there only one farm per year that wins the award? Yes, one, one wow. farm per year. And it's, uh, it's to recognise leadership in land care and sustainable agriculture. And um, that's what it was. It's, it is actually a, a single-person award, Dimitri. So Andrew actually won the award. But, of course, we all helped him. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, yeah. So he he's you know the award the award the award couldn't be given to multiple people or a family. That's the way they have it set mm. up. It's a goes to a single person. So um, Andrew was the one that was nominated for the award. So and then and then since then we've actually also won the Victorian Government Farming Land Care Award. Andrew and I have both, have both won that. So wow, that's um, fantastic award recently. Well, it makes the, me uh, very grateful to have you on the podcast because having award-winning <laughs> farmers on the show is fantastic. <laughs> One thing we should say, I think, that with the National Award, the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, is that it's also recognition of the community and the groups we've worked with over the last 30 years with the Otway Agroforestry Network and the East Otway Landcare Group and the Crangamite Catchment Management Authority. and um, 
you know, there's been a lot of coll collaboration, for example, on the revegetation of the Yanyan Gurt catchment involving many farmers. Mm. So that's all sort of part of it. You know, that's it's been there's been a lot of community activity in this region in land care and agroforestry. So um, it's also recognition of those efforts because no no one person can do this. It's got to be a collaboration, and it's about networking and and working together and coming up with uh, better plans for our environment and farming systems. And, and that's the, the, the case for your farm as well, right? You're, you're working as a family, if I understood correctly. Yeah, that's right. So mm -hmm. Andrew and I mainly run the farm. We have three daughters and two of those daughters work on the farm with us. Um, and then when we have mm -hmm. tree planting days and things like that, the extended family comes. So um, the, the rest of Andrew's family that live in Melbourne and down on the coast come up and help plant as long as, as well as a whole heap of other people as well, friends and people people that think tree planting is a real novelty. So um, that nice. happens every year. We have a family and friends tree planting day. So we've been doing that for 30 years, that tree planting day. So that's been great. And just pre-COVID in 2019 when everyone was allowed out, <laughs> we had 74 people turn up and uh, that was wow. a big event. And it turns into a nice social activity too, Dimitri, because that's part of the whole ethos of land care and and uh, running farms is, you know, the community aspect of it and uh, we really enjoy that. And so after planting, we have a late lunch and sit down and, and enjoy the scenery and and, um, and each other's company. Yeah, we and usually have a bit of a bonfire, you know, somewhere up where we've been planting and, and everyone mm. brings food to share. So it's a really... Really lovely day. But we've been doing it for a long time and we've got, you know, some of the people that have been coming have been coming for nearly 30 years. So they, um, last year we ended up, oh, sorry, no, pre-COVID, we did a bit of a tour to look at all the stuff they've planted in the previous year so they could see how some of their trees had grown that they'd mm. helped plant many years before. So they were pretty excited about that. Oh, that's incredible. They've seen the whole evolution of the tree planting yeah. for since the beginning, right? It's 30 years ago that it started. More or less, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's intergenerational now because mm. our daughters are now, you know, sort of in their late 20s, early 30s, and and then um, our oldest daughter has three girls, so we've got three grandchildren, and then my brothers and sisters have family and they come down and their friends come down. So we've been getting a lot of young people, which was which has been motivating, so that mm. they, they've really <clears throat> taken on the whole idea that tree planting is a good idea and, and they encourage their friends and they're very enthusiastic and uh, you know you get a lot of lot of engine you get young people around and uh, that's great for us older people because um, I think it inspires everybody we just had a planting day um, last week with 50 people and um, you know in a few hours we got so many trees planted it was incredible and uh, and then we had again same same thing um, I can really relate to your experiences Thanks to this, because we, we then had a, a big barbecue going, all the tables were out in the field and everybody was 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 eating and drinking and, and, and enjoying after the tree planting. It was it was perfect because it was it, it worked super well for the farmer that, that wanted the trees planted. It worked for people that wanted to learn about tree planting and then people yeah. that wanted to get out of the city and spend a bit of time in the countryside and be, you know, on a farm and connecting and networking. It was really you know, it was really an important, let's say, moment. It was very inspiring. Yeah, it's well, like a bit of like a cross-pollination, isn't it? You know, city yeah, exactly. and country and um, 
And, I mean, it makes it more enjoyable for us too than us just going out there and planting the trees. We have other people here as well, so it makes the whole the whole job much easier and much more fun. So it's um, and it's, it's great having all the young people here. They're all pretty enthusiastic. And a lot of those come back, their mates of our daughters come back and they help prune later on because they love getting up and having got high pruning some of the agroforestry trees. So that's been sort of a carry-on from the planting. Maybe we could go a bit into the... The story of the farm. I mean, how did it? How did you get started with with your farm? How how did everything begin? You know, when did you start transitioning towards these new practices? Well, I suppose um, to answer that, we should give a little bit of history about the farm. Our family has been on this property for 116 years. It came here in 1905, and so uh, you know, there's we're now up to the sixth generation on the property. And our father, he actually started planting native trees back in 1967 because he was keen on um, shade and shelter for his sheep and birds. He loved birds. And, and he and his friend, who had a farm or has a farm as well, was of a similar feeling to that. And so they got together and, and started planting native trees, which was not a common thing to do because at that stage, you know, people were mainly planting cypress trees and um, pine trees or maybe even cutting trees down. And so that was a bit of a shift in those days and it wasn't easy then because there weren't the land care groups, um, there weren't the nurseries, there wasn't the um, this communal support that we have. But they battled away and um, <clears throat> it was only small scale then but, but they really pioneered planting native trees in this district. And, um, and then later on as... As we grew up, um, I think that had an impact on us. I can remember planting trees when I was a kid with my father. And then when we came and became really active in the farm, we thought we should develop a whole farm plan because we were facing a lot of issues on the farm. Even though a bit of tree planting had occurred, we needed a lot more because we had issues such as... um, Erosion, tunnel erosion, and stream bank erosion, and gully erosion, and and then uh, salt affected areas as well. Water logging back in those days, uh, lack of biodiversity, paddocks being too big. So, as a family, we developed a whole farm plan to try and um, avert these issues and and come up with a strategic approach to uh, seeing what we could do. And it coincided with land care. Land care sort of kicked off. Um, you know, in about um, 1986-87 and and then, um, you know, we were developing our whole farm plan in the early 90s. So we um, were working with Landcare and then our colleague, Rowan Reid, whom you've interviewed, he um, bought a property only three kilometres away and we became friends way back in 1987 and we've been mm. friends ever since. And uh, the first day we met, we were talking trees and, the last conversation I had with him three days ago was still talking trees, and, and that'll continue. <laughs> <laughs> and so he um, had the idea of agroforestry. We really hadn't thought much about that because we were focusing on looking at the uh, how, how to uh, address these issues using the land care approach. And um, and so we started, you know, fencing out areas such as the creek lines and and the drainage lines and the salt affected areas and planting those out and the waterlogged areas and 
in the remnant vegetation areas and this is what we had on our plan. But with the agroforestry, uh, it seemed to us after talking with Rowan that well, why don't we integrate some agroforestry with the plantings because we're doing all this um, work. Why not man manage some of the trees for tree products? So we took the fences out a bit wider than the normal land care planting and, and flanked them with some, some of those trees that we could manage. And uh, that's how it really evolved, I think. And we've been working towards the plan for the last 30 years and and um, now we've established 50,000 trees and shrubs along these areas and, and that's really resulted in a, in a web of connected trees throughout the farm forming wildlife corridors and protection for the soil and the animals and, and the waterways and and um, it's uh, brought in the birds and and so it's um, and also we're connecting with uh, neighbours because at that time there was the Yanyangur Creek catchment plan through the Landcare Group that we worked with so we were very involved with that so our wildlife corridors are connected with our neighbours and that Yanyangur Creek catchment is now 18, well, it's 18 kilometres long, it's pretty much all been fenced out and revegetated. so there's been a lot of collaboration. So there was, there was a whole mood of people doing a lot of things at that time in land care and agroforestry and, and, and coming up with more sustainable farming systems. So that's sort of roughly the evolution of where we've got and Jill might have something to add that I've forgotten. Well, I think you covered it all. Yeah, I mean, we did... We were working on the farm, so we were aware of the issues that we had, you know, in the land, mm. the physical issues that we had in the landscape, and it was certainly um, very exposed out working, particularly on some of our top hills. You know, we just had no shelter, no shade, and we were getting one year we had uh, it was very dry, and we lost a, a lot of topsoil blowing off the pasture, um, and the pasture mm. was probably you know not as good as it could have been, Didn't have as much ground cover as we should have, but also no trees to stop the wind either and um you know we thought at the time when we were up there putting a fence up that gee we need really need to plant some trees to try and slow this wind down and keep our soil on our own place and and uh, add a bit of biodiversity so so uh, this was a very like let's say complete introduction i really enjoyed it and i know some of the listeners may be thinking you know but wait what what is what is actually being produced on the farm Apart from the trees, so I think it's a it's the, it's the time to mention as well. Maybe you know what what's your main crops coming out of the farm? What acreage are you farming on? Um, some of these basics would be would be really great to hear. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, the main production of the farm is sheep. So um, we we raise sheep, prime lambs for meat. So that's our main. Um, and, and this year we've raised around, um, sorry, last year we've raised around 1,700 lambs um, that have gone off the sale. We have a, a base flock of 1,300 ewes that we breed from with rams that we put over them. So that's that's our main production, but there's lots of small side productions happening now, um, a lot to do with the other um, opportunities that have been created through the agroforestry network. So we've planted... Um, native flowers so we've we've had a system where we've been going through the farm and fencing off all our dams to improve the water quality because we've found if, if stock get into dams they make a bit of a mess and um, they also cause erosion around the edge so we've now slowly going around the whole farm and fencing every dam off and some with um, if they're high in the landscape with a trough off them which is just gravity fed 
and others where we just have a very small stock access where the stock can get in and get a drink but they can't wallow around in the water or get around the banks and so mm-hmm. every every dam that we've fenced off we've planted out because we just thought you know we'd add to the biodiversity on the farm and makes the dams look a lot nicer and um, provides habitat for wild animals and things like that so but one of the dams we um, we decided to take the fence out a bit further and we planted about 27 different species of Banksias, native Australian flowers and um, really we did it for fun we put lots of things in there as well we put leucodendrons and leucospernums and kunzias and all sorts of other plants in there um, but it ended up of course all those things flowered and, and we thought well maybe we'll start selling them at the top of the driveway so I was just making up bunches and putting it at the top of the driveway which just went like hotcakes probably because they were too cheap but anyway um, <laughs> then, um and then, then I had like our local land care office Kate, come to me and say, "Oh, we're having a land care event. Can you do the flowers for it?" So that all that all started to happen. And then, you know, friends, someone knew someone were having a wedding and they wanted native flowers, so we started supplying those. And then we had probably um, oh, I don't know how many bushes of flowers. I mean, we had twenty seven species, but we probably got um, a couple of hundred bushes of of banksias planted in this area. And so, of course, we had a lot of flowers. So I thought, well, I've got lots of flowers there and um, need to do something with them. So I picked them and took them into local florists and they just jumped on them. They just, um, they're hard to get hold of. And uh, and when they're freshly grown and locally grown, they were very keen to support to support that. So I now supply local florists in Colac, and, uh, which is sort of half an hour from us. Um, and that's, that's a regular thing now. So every week I'm taking orders. They have standard orders that they put into me each week and every week I take those orders in and deliver them to them. So that's actually become a fairly substantial income for the farm now. Mm. I mean, not as cheap, but it's 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 pretty good. And, um, we've, in fact, it's been so successful, we're now putting another plantation in. So we've sectioned off another area in the farm that's not so productive for grass and sheep but that would be a good well-drained site to put more banksias in and we'll probably make this a more commercial plantation so we'll actually plant it in rows and things so it's easier to harvest whereas the site where it is now it's a beautiful oasis and it's gorgeous but the plants are just planted all over the place and pathways are pretty thin to get in between plants and things particularly now it's 10 years later that we planted that out it's getting quite overgrown and pretty hard to get through to pick flowers so we thought well we'll we'll put a commercial plantation and it's going to be a bit easier to pick but it's 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 amazing we do farm tours and we have um that's one of the favorite spots you know nearly every tour group that comes they love the farm but boy they absolutely fall in love with the Banksia site and it's got native foods and things in there too we're growing native mint and uh, lily pillies and a few other things in there just just trialing for fun and then my um, brother-in-law, Andrew's brother, Hugh, has been heavily involved with that site and uh, he's planted fruit trees in there. So it's, it's sort of like a food and flower forest now. <laughs> so it's, um, but it, that's been a great, you know, just a side thing to the farm that wasn't there before. I mean, firstly, I've seen the, the video that they filmed with this spot um, and it looks incredible. I would, and I've only seen it in a video, so I can't even imagine what it's like in person. But it seems to be quite a high value area, as you know, per area in the sense it's very high value 
per 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 hectare kind of kind of thing, right? It's very concentrated, quite small, and producing this very high value product, whilst you know benefiting biodiversity. It seems like such a huge win win. It is a big win win. I mean, it's this, mm. in that area now. There is twelve species of honey eaters, and before that, there would have been no mm. birds. There. It was just an eroding dam with nothing around it. So it's now incredibly diverse. There's lots of little um, bush swamp rats up there. Uh, echidnas in there there's all sorts of things in there now it's really quite a really biodiverse little spot and and one of the beauties of the banks here is, is that they like not very good soil acidic sandy loam soil is what we've got up there mm. and that's what Banksy is like so we haven't had to do anything we've planted them nursed them along a bit to get them going but really apart from me pruning the trees the and the plants now I'm, you know it's not you don't have to put fertiliser off. You don't have to be up there watering them all the time because they like a lack, a lack of water. They've been grown in Western Australia, a lot of them, so they're used to, you know, drought, and uh, so they're very drought tolerant. So they're very easy, and they're, they, you know, they're just the most beautiful flowers. They're very unusual, and, and a lot of people really like them. Oh, part of the, um, the program up there is, I think it's looking at the graded site that Jill mentioned where the cattle are just eutifying it and, was so sandy they were pushing it in and um so it was very bad for agriculture but fantastic for banksias so it's it's matching you know uh, another management system for that site and turning a problem into a creative solution and now with jill's hard work it's become also a, an economic uh, proposition as well which was a bit unexpected as jill explained so yeah. sometimes you know i mean we Consider this as part of our agroforestry, you know, the, the bushes and, and shrubs and, and flowers, native flowers is part of our agroforestry. So um, sometimes you get you get um, um, unexpe unexpected benefits coming out of the woodwork, and that's one of them. Yeah. And, and I mean, and the there other, are others that we can talk about later. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the other beauty of that too is the, the water quality has improved out of sight in that dam. Mm. because the cattle aren't making a mess of it now. It's got a trough off it, so it's on a hillside, so the trough can just be gravity-fed, and that, that's down below outside the plantation and the paddock for the stock to get a drink. So, you know, the water quality is so much clearer than it was. It was very muddy before, but it's really quite clear, and a lot of reeds have grown up in the dam now that couldn't have done before because the cattle would have just like either knocked them or eaten them. So, yeah. you know, it, it has been a real win-win situation and there's a lot of that. there's a cacophony of frogs there if you go up there in the evening. There's frogs all over the place. Well, there's, I didn't ever see a frog there for thirty years, and yeah. now there's heaps of frogs. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful spot, and it's, it's really lovely to go up there and pick because it's. You know, I have, I have, uh, I do employ someone now because I'm selling so many flowers. So I employ someone to come and help me pick, and I've just, you know, the people I've employed, I've only had a couple of them. <laughs> just. They just said this is the best job they've ever had. You know, this is just <laughs> being up there amongst all the birds, with the, listening to the frogs and picking these beautiful flowers, and you know, so that, that they just love it. But I suppose we should talk about some of the other things. You know, the the products that have been derived from the trees on the farm. Yeah, I would love to to get into that. But before that, I just wanted to, I had one thing in mind, and I was just thinking about, you know, the tulip production systems that they have in 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 Europe. Um, with yeah. these massive fields of just with just one flower, and they're they're all chemically managed and etc. And when you think about if we could produce flowers in this way, 
especially with, mm. you know, as you said, more, more a bit more rational systems with lines a bit more organized, even though that yeah. wouldn't be so beautiful, of course. But it just seems like, uh, a, a, you know, it could just transform the, the, the flower industry, and especially if it's in high demand. It's something that's, you know, mm. if, I, if I went to a shop personally, I would definitely buy perennial flowers rather than annual flowers in the same way that we try to eat as much perennial food as we can, right? People realised how many flowers were being imported because a lot of them couldn't be imported anymore. And I think, I don't think yeah. many florists actually educate their buyers about where the flowers come from. But I, but I think what happened is a lot of people went into the flowers to get their normal flowers, whatever they get. And, and they're told, oh, no, well, we can't get those. And then, well, you know, why not? And, oh, well, they come from Chile or they come from South Africa or somewhere. And people just were abs absolutely amazed at how many flowers we actually import when we've got these beautiful ones here that we can just, you know, yeah. grow in our own country that are suited to our soils that we don't need to be using fertiliser or, and we don't, we don't even use any sprays up at this site. It's, it's, there is a bit of maintenance, physical maintenance that has to go on up there. But um, we've planted yeah. a lot of um, native grasses and tussocks and things like that like up there to try and keep the weeds under control so that we don't have to be doing too much maintenance. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a pretty, pretty good site. Let's, maybe we shift to the, some of the other products that you have that have emerged from, from the forestry plantations, from the agroforestry, sorry plantations what you know what other kind of products have you started selling based on on the tree plant? um well we we have sold um we, we've got some pine plantations in and we even though we haven't harvested any big logs out of that yet originally um when we were first growing the trees we had an approach from someone that wanted to buy christmas trees so we actually went through and just marked the trees that we would allow them to take which weren't probably the best form for us for our agroforestry logs but okay for them to take for Christmas trees so a guy actually came and just harvested those we just went through and marked the ones he could take and the and when he paid us for those that actually paid for the establishment of the pine trees so it was a really good good way to, to get those established mm. um, and other things we've we've done um, small amounts of harvesting for roundwood timber so we've got our daughter and her partner are natural builders and they're in, within a set of friends that are natural builders. So they use a lot of roundwood timber logs. So they've come in and harvested a few of those out of the smaller logs out of our plantations that aren't, aren't big enough for to go for big logs at this stage. Um, and my, yeah, Michelle, our daughter's partner, Nick, is a landscape designer. So he's harvested roundwood logs for a wild playground down at the coast that he built for a kindergarten. Um, what else have we? What else have we? Well, we, we've also um, got had um, some harvesting for uh, blue gum pop for high quality paper uh, um, making, and but instead of planting our okay. pulp logs, so our blue gum logs in one big block, we've stretched them out into three kilometres of um, twelve row shelter belts throughout the farm, and all along our and class subdivisions mm. because when the company first approached us about blue gums, I think they were keen just to put them all in the, say, a 20-acre block. But we thought that was high risk, you know, and, uh, and, and, weren't getting, and many, wouldn't get many multiple values from that. So we had our whole farm planned in place. So it was an ideal situation to then use that to negotiate with the company that we could place 
12 road plantations along our land class subdivisions and um, into three kilometres of shelter belts, which is going to significant shelter uh, for the farm. Of course, they get harvested. They were planted in 1993 and harvested in 2007. And now they're regrowing because they coppice from the stump and end up with more four or five litres. And we come in maybe 18 months later and take out the poorer leaders and leave the strong leader. And so we'll be managing the crop for a second rotation, which will be a few years down the track. And so that's uh, that also provides us with a good cash income to put into a tree fund for the farm. And then we've used that tree fund to finance yeah. other plantings throughout the property. And that's how we've, how we've managed that. Um, there's also some um, seed. So we've, we've got a seed orchard and... Um, and, and we have um, sh uh, we have spotted gum and, and sugar gum, and we've been in a partnership with another group with that and, and my brother, and we've surrounded the seed orchards with uh, three rows of biodiverse native plantings to protect it and to enhance the pollination to give better seed production and improve the environment. And so the thinnings from that plantation are the ones that Jill referred to have been used for the roundwood timber building. And we're letting the others grow on for saw logs as well as harvesting some of the seed. We haven't sold much seed. We thought there was going to be more demand for it. There is seed in storage, so that, that might change. But it's also a, um, a plantation which is protecting the livestock, the sheep, giving them good shade and shelter as well. So we really like to focus on the, the multi-purpose functionality of, of these projects. Um, so they're, yeah. uh, they're probably the main things we've using or that we've sold there's also the um the sculptures that yeah we have we have um we've got a fairly artistic daughter who goes to lots <laughs> of festivals and she's yeah. she and a crew of people um have been artists at festivals building big sculptures so they've bought some of the timber for us some of the some of the thinnings as andrew's talking about to build sculptures for festivals so some of it's gone off yeah. to that and then now we've got another daughter she makes um she makes cut placemats out of timber. So, you know, e even if it's just fallen logs or, or thinning, she'll, she makes um, placemats out of, you know, beautiful placemats, often out of she-oak. So she's just cutting a thin a thin thing straight across the round log and then making placemats, and they're beautiful. She oils them and gives them away as presents and things. The other um, product which is coming online soon that, not quite there yet, is uh, will be saw logs. We've got some saw logs that are ready for harvest. We've got some that are 80, 83 or 4 centimetres in diameter at breast height and they've been high pruned. And uh, so a number of species, we've probably got about mm. 10 species of saw logs that we're managing, including pinus radiata and blackwoods and blue gums and yellow gums, sugar gums and spotted mm. gums and others. And so they're all integrated mainly with our plantations and we manage those and, so they'll be coming on stream. That'll be fused down the track, and um, that'll be pretty exciting when we, we, we get those uh, happening as well. How much does that represent? I mean, is that, is that a quite a big chunk of the shelter belts, shelter belts that you've planted that have been used for, you know, timber timber production? I'll put it this way. I guess we've, we've taken the property from 3% woody vegetation in 1991 to 18% now, and probably closer to 20 percent i suppose and um and so of of those uh, about half those are being managed in different ways 
in that system. There's a lot of um, understory integrated with those plantings as well because we're really big on biodiversity and overall we've established about 120 species of um, overstory and understory of trees and shrubs throughout the farm. Yeah, so there's lots that we'll, we'll never cut down that are just there for yeah. biodiversity and wildlife and shelter and shade and things like that. Yeah. And how, I mean, how are you going to, I'm just thinking a bit about the, the, the saw logs that you're, that you're going to be harvesting soon because I imagine that re represents quite a, a big chunk of the, of, of firstly of income, but also of the trees that you've planted for, for yeah. economic reasons. Um, how do you plan on, on harvesting and selling that? Without being a forestry farm, one of the things that we often encounter is farmers don't have the knowledge or the infrastructure to be able to do that. And then they're, when they're planted in shelter belts, often companies can be a bit, you know, slightly pissed off really at having to come in and harvest them. They'd rather have them in, in, in monocrop blocks. So how, do you, how are you guys going to navigate that problem? Well, I suppose if we look at the blue gums which have been harvested and we've had the experience now, although they were done in those, uh, those belts, um, it did make it uh, more difficult and more challenging, but they still did it. And, and um, it was a, we were in a profit share program and we, we both made a profit. <laughs> so it actually worked. So we, we know that and so now it can work again. So that's fine. And what we with, what we did do with that though the blue gums though when we did get them harvested the first time we actually um, cooperated with neighbours and other people in the area that have got blue gums on their farms too. So the company could come and they could uh, harvest ours. They could harvest the next door neighbours. They could harvest the guys down the road. And so we all cooperated with each other and all harvested at the same time. It made more worthwhile for that company to come out and know that they had a few farms where they could get a harvest of blue gums from. That, that's right and that was done in collaboration with our Otway Agroforestry Network as well so that mm -hmm. was definitely to get back to your question the um, with the Pinus radiata we have uh, three small lots of Pinus radiata and um, we have had discussions with a company that's uh, about 30 kilometres away some years ago and at that stage they said if um if we could get the logs you know up to a landing up near the road somewhere um well uh, they, they would pick them up but we think that um we there'd be probably su sufficient volume there to justify a proper harvester to come out and and do those logs as well with the other ones which uh, are you know more niche um opportunities we'd, we'd be looking at uh, harvesting those ourselves and um, and using a portable mill to those and uh, and I think that you know that sort of thing is starting to come on stream now where it's I think it's going to be more possible not quite there yet but I think over the next five or ten years there's going to be more of this activity getting around and um, so uh, we feel confident that we'd be able to do that. And, um, and be able to harvest those because that would just be small scale and and um, it'll be interesting to see how that all, all pans out, but that'll be something we'll have to negotiate at the time. I mean, there is a call now, there is starting to be a call now from architects that are looking for sustainably grown timber and that sort of thing. Mm. So the Forestry Network is starting to get people like that ringing up going, look, we... We've got a we've got a project we want to do, and the, and the owners have called for sustainably grown timber. You know, what have you got? What what you what can you supply? So we you know we think that sort of thing, the demand for that sort of thing is going to increase. 
because when I'm when I'm thinking about the scale of this of this project, I'm thinking about fifty thousand trees, maybe I don't know a quarter of them managed for for timber. That, that seems like quite a big a big harvest project as well. That seems nearly like a full time job for somebody to be harvesting that and then milling it with a with a mill on farm. Yeah, we're harvesting individuals. We're not we're not harvesting everything at the same time. So you know. It's, so that niche timber that would be harvested as we get orders. So it would be, you know, a small job. You're not. You're obviously not harvesting. If you've got fifty thousand trees and you're harvesting quarter of them, well, you're not doing that all at the same time. It's over, you know, a series over years probably. Um, whereas the blue gums obviously all come out all at once, and um, the pine trees would probably come out mostly at once too. But the others would all be singly harvest, harvested. I, I, I think keeping in context is that the the blue gum plantations is about eight thousand of those, so that's going to be done mechanically, and that's already we've already done one iteration of that. Yeah. And uh, with the the um, the pines, well, there's probably about a thousand of those uh, thereabouts, um, and then probably a, a bit more than that actually. So we think we can do that with a more of a commercial operation, and then. Then the other trees, as you were saying, it's more selective over time. That that would be over probably you know a twenty year period, you know, fifteen year period, or something like that. So you'd be just doing some selective logging from time to time, and um, and we'll just have to see how that goes. But that'll be the excitement of trying to work it out. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that that's also going to enable you to get higher value for those logs because you, if you manage to sell them directly to smaller groups or smaller enterprises that are looking for specific native native high quality wood hopefully that would help with gaining value right our, our colleague Ron reed he's already been doing this so he's been paving the way for us so we're learning from him and um and our waters are keen on the project yeah. because they've been involved in even planting the trees and now they've been involved in harv- in uh, pruning them and now they're starting to get interested in well how are we going to harvest them so this is sort of these are the discussions we're having so like all these things when you're trying something a bit different the whole thinking process is an evolutionary process and uh, there's nothing said in concrete about this, so we'll just have to see how it works out. But thus far, we've been able to harvest and um, and gain um, return from some of our trees and, and the shrubs, you know, with the banks of the jill does. And so it's just a, a learning curve all the way through because we're coming from uh, a low knowledge base because uh, this is the first iteration on this farm of this uh, sort of activity. So it's like it's sort of pioneering in a way and just sort of seeing how it goes but but meanwhile i mean if we don't ever ever take some of those trees out it won't matter because of all the multiple benefits we're getting from having the trees on our place so we're not you know we're not really set in stone that we're going to cut all those trees down um they're they're providing multiple benefits as they're growing so it doesn't matter if they don't get harvested you know they can they can stay there and provide shade and shelter and, you know, biodiversity and habitat and all the other things that trees provide for you uh, in the meantime. Yeah, Jill's quite right there. I mean, in, in a way, it's like the uh, tree products is icing on the cake and if we didn't harvest any of those trees, they're all learning, earning their, their right to be on the farm. But but because we've been managing them, we've, we've kept the opportunity alive to... Uh, have the choice of cutting them down or leave them there for their for their carbon or for the birds and and not take them out. Mm. So you know, we'll we might yeah. take some and leave some or t- 
take more or take less. So we can decide and make decisions as we go. Mm. I mean, in the in the sense originally you planted these trees in shelter belts, for example. If we take if we break into a bit the shelter belt example to give more of a of a visual uh, and more detailed understanding to our listeners and to myself, I'm fascinated by this. Um, we've got shelter belts that have been originally planted for um, the ecosystem services, windbreak, shade for the for the animals, etc. That's their original function. And you've just extended them a bit in order to be able to add a bit more forestry opportunities. Not only have we planted along the riparian zones and the drainage lines and the salt-affected areas and the remnant vegetation areas, but we've also planned along land-class subdivisions. And, and and they're all connected, so yeah. so you can you can see how that can provide a lot of ecosystem service by having wildlife corridors going right through the farm, yeah. and then and then getting all that protection benefit. And now we have a twenty-three kilometre interface of plantation to pasture, so in a sort of a thing you in a permaculture mm-hmm. sense that that that's where you get a lot of um, really good interaction in in the uh, biology of the farming system yeah. so it's sort of quite exciting and um so so in the harvest of the saw logs on in those plantings and of course not not all the plantations uh have trees that we are managing some of them have trees that we aren't with that we're not managing as well so it's a real mixed match you know but so with the harvesting it'd be done on a mosaic over space and time so you would hardly notice that trees have been harvested from there because the harvest and a replant and only doing small numbers, as opposed to the blue gums, which is different. But with the saw logs, is the way that it, that it would occur. So it gives us plenty of time to be able to come up with mechanisms and opportunities to to manage this. So even if we've got a contract, you know, portable miller coming in or something like that, or even if we bought one ourselves, if the girls have become really interested in this, and that might become another add-on business for the for the property. And so what you're saying is that you would by harvesting kind of spot harvesting around the shelter belt, you wouldn't actually compromise the the function, the ecological function of the shelter belt. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. It's yeah. still, yeah, your shelter belt would still be worth doing doing its work, what it's meant to do. It's just got the odd tree taken out of it, which, of course, we replant yeah. when we take out. So, If you're sometimes just taking an individual tree, that can be an act of conservation too because you're allowing more light in the understory yeah. as well and then you can plant another tree there a different variety if required the only challenge that i see with that is is the efficiency of the harvest right mm. in terms of that kind of harvest and that kind of plantation in the shelter belt so integrating agroforestry and shelter belts and harvesting timber um, means that you know it'd be difficult for a company to come in and efficiently you know harvest things mechanically also would be pretty impossible right no, oh, that's right. It's not. It's not for that. You know that that type of planting is not for that. I mean, our blue gums is for that, and our pine trees we can do that with. But you know, I suppose we're we're we're, we're sort of putting our eggs in a few baskets. <laughs> so we've we've got some areas that can be mechanically done, and others where mm. we would just be taking individual trees out that we'd be managing ourselves. I, I think with the, with the pine trees that because we've got you know, quite a few of those and we probably could do that in, in, in one go uh, there. Um, but they're so positioned also that there are other trees um, nearby where they are which will help uh, fill that 
that um, issue or void of, of uh, protection as well. Other, other trees would grow after replanting. Um, yeah, but certainly, yeah, doing doing the niche harvesting wouldn't be uh, attractive to a company, and that that's got to get down to you know an individual contractor who would go around with a portable mill to um, to help with that. Which is a job opportunity, you know, it's an opportunity for someone to set up um, a business where they could go around to farmers' places that are doing agroforestry like we are and, and mill trees. Based on your kind of estimates, it, it is spot harvesting from the shelter belts and, and, and creating saw logs yourself and selling them is, is going to be worth your, your time investment. It's going to, to, to be able to pay for your time and, and makes a little extra on the side. As, you know, I'm just trying to think, is it best to do that or would it be best to just leave the shelter belt as it is and not harvest? Yeah, well, that's, that's right. So that becomes an interesting decision, particularly now with carbon sequestration and, and, uh, and this sort of thing. Um, but I think what Rowan has demonstrated over his place there where he's, he's, um, he's milled his and, and air-dried them, but um, it, it is... Um, economically viable to do that to justify your time and to give a profit for, for that type of operation um, yeah, I suppose Rowan's really got the experience with that and we we haven't with that sort of in the future for us whereas he he has done quite a lot of that sort of thing yeah. so we speak to that better than we would we we would um we would certainly we'll certainly trial it a few years down the track and then learn from our experiences and then if we decide you know, certain trees aren't performing well or whatever, we can say, well, we're not going to harvest those, but we'll harvest these. Or we might say, might go through the process and have came to the point where we couldn't make it um, pay. We just leave the trees there and they continue to form the function on the farm. So it's not a lost investment because we've had all those fixed costs of doing the fencing, the establishment, buying the trees, which we do for a normal land care planting. Uh, it just so happens that we've managed some of those trees to keep the opportunity alive to develop a commercial product from in terms of timber. And so in, in that sense, that's our risk management strategy. And if we were just planting um, 10 hectares in a block for saw logs, well, that would be a high-risk strategy because you really, to justify the end of that because you're getting very very few other benefits because you've got a big block in terms of our traditional agricultural production, um, that becomes more of a straight forestry investment and that is a high-risk proposition. But if you have the trees integrated and getting the multiple values, that's low risk. In fact, it's it's um, an important part of the risk management strategy of the whole farm, if you can turn that on its head and say that... Um, because those trees are there, it's protecting the natural resource base and providing all the other benefits we've been talking about. And uh, so that's like a win-win. I think that's really, really interesting to, to look at tree plantation and agroforestry through that lens because there's a lot of criticism around about how planting trees is risky. It takes away, you know, there's, there's, there's many fears as well and not necessarily always founded in, in, in the actual you know, um, reality that we see in the field, but there is a lot of fear around this and tree planting is often considered risky. And so what you're saying here is by m merging these multiple functions together, you know, you're, 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 you're buffering risk because if you don't manage to have a perfect saw log, well, you've got these other things going on. 
Um, and you know, if the price is right of, of of timber at some point, you know, and you've got high high very good prices for certain logs, native logs, for example, well, you get in there and you harvest a few and you get a, a good deal out of it. It gives you a lot of flexibility. That's right. It, it it gives you flexibility because you you know if if the price isn't right, well, you don't sell the log. So it's you know with these these other plantations where and I mean not only that they're monocultures those big plantations which isn't healthy for our ecosystem and for our biodiversity. So you know biodiversity healthy and so those those plantations that we've put in have got multi species in them as well as saw logs and and so they're much healthier for the environment and for habitat for birds and animals and you know insects and things like that so i think that um you know to us it's a healthier healthier way for the environment to plant and we think that's incredibly important and that's also provides resilience for the farm in the face of climate change so you know if if you if you're planting monocultures it's it's well known monocultures are not healthy in any system you know whether it be wheat or you know 3300 blue gum so um and you, you you've got you've got all those benefits that if you have a a multi-species system that often those things will look after each other if you have an insect come and attack a certain tree well one of those other things that plantation might harbor something that will kill that insect that's that's getting stuck into another tree so you know the biodiversity is just much healthier in, those, in that type of planting and we see that as being very important you can have you can have small monocultures within the context of a polyculture though in a mosaic over space yeah, and time over, over a landscape. Yeah. Um, the other thing I suppose to mention here is that this is about fitting the trees into the landscape to capture those multiple values, and um, and so by doing that, we have the fixed costs as described before with the fencing and establishing the trees and doing the planting and so on which we're going to do anyway for all the reasons we have spoken about the only added variable cost to bring that tree to a saw log is um, the act of doing a form prune uh, and the act of pruning up to six meters all the other costs of the fixed costs the same as you would do for straight land care planning so that variable cost probably um, only amounts to probably about half an hour of your time to do that, to get it to that point. Um, maybe an hour, perhaps less. That's, tree. that's on each tree. On, yeah. on, each, on each tree. So that's a, very, that's a very small cost to keep the opportunity alive to potentially harvesting an 80-centimetre tree breast height and getting two cubic metres of timber and selling that as uh, an air-dried um, product for you know maybe a thousand dollars or something like that, which was probably a realistic um, statement, and um, so I think they're they're the sort of economics I carry around in my head when looking <laughs> at a tree, and um, and then then we say, well, okay, one day we might harvest that and do that, or we might just leave it. Either way, it's it's a it's a winning situation, providing it doesn't burn down. I say that I often have in my head the voice of the of the agroforestry septic. Um, I'm I'm quite sold on it, but I like to carry that voice of a person that's hearing about it for the first time and that would say yes, but you know. And one of the things that often comes up is this fixed cost of implementation. And so I think there's there's a multiple there's m- m- many things that people would 
that would that would kind of prevent or block a farmer from implementing agroforestry also knowledge etc but a big part of it is you know that initial cost to plant it and so what we're seeing is that often people are just really waiting on subsidies for example notably in our context in Europe to plant trees and they may not take the initiative themselves and the cost on their own businesses to plant these shelter belts which could provide economic value in the future but if you just focus on that that's quite risky so it's not as any of you know we talk with Rowan about this and he, he talks quite actively about the fact that we need to plan for conservation not just for profit and it, it, it relates very closely to what you were saying now and so what my, my question would be you know how would you approach that fixed cost problem how do you in your context in Australia how does how does that work how do you work around that well um, the we have a fixed cost for doing our land care planning. And if we weren't doing any agroforestry, we'd be doing that anyway. Um, and because we've got around about 18% of our landscape under woody vegetation, we found that it hasn't actually reduced our traditional agricultural output. In other words, we're still, last year, um, you know, we produced 1,800 lambs and and then you know, so we're still producing as many as many lambs and as much wool as we were back thirty years ago. But we've got all these trees in the landscape as well, and we're getting the other products from these trees, which we've already talked about, that have already come out and and more that are coming. So um, it hasn't, in that sense, affected our production system. But what it has done is it actually has improved the um, resilience and robustness of our farm environment in terms of providing shade and shelter for our livestock and you know, for our sheep and and um, and also bringing the biodiversity back into the system you know looking at our integrated pest management as well and our waterway management and reducing erosion and reducing salting so we're getting all these other benefits to the natural resource base, so that that is uh, relevant in terms of a straight business cost to put up this biological infrastructure of web of trees across the farm. If it's just straight land care plantings, so um, and and also it's uh, generated a carbon neutral farming program for us. In fact, we're now carbon positive for our system, and uh, so that's where. We've, where we all want to be and I think that if you look at it like that then you say okay well if you're going to manage some of those trees and you invest say half an hour an hour of your time per tree in the for the life of the tree you've kept the option of alive actually harvesting a tree which could potentially return you um, a gross of a thousand dollars and taking out um, harvesting expenses and drying expenses from that, it still, I would think, would be a profitable option. If it wasn't, well, you just leave the tree there. And so we've still got our system in place. So it's this system is a lot about risk management and developing a robust and resilient farming system, as Jill said, in, in the face of climate change so that we're better protected, less likely to have... Um, major events in, in terms of uh, weather variability and, and and what we're finding is that the farm is actually 
the farm is actually cooler in the summer, which we know from all the 23 kilometres of interface of trees to plantation. Every paddock is, is, is shaded from whichever direction because of the way the planting has been done and they're just straight lines that follow the contours of, of the land. And, uh, and it's also relatively warm in the winter. When you look at the, when you look at the um, chill factor on newborn lambs, if you can reduce the wind speed, the chill factor reduction is a function of the square of the wind speed. So, therefore, it's far better for newborn lambs if, if we get adverse conditions, they're going to be more protected and get a higher survival rate. Um, the last two years, we've averaged 150% landing percentages from our from our flock and uh, we think that the shade and shelter helps as well as other factors that change management and different breeds and different pastures but we think that the protection from the plantation um, weather trees is certainly uh, beneficial for us in that as well so there are all these little bits of additive values and collectively they're, they're significant we think and then you have, you know, the improved value of the property over time as well because of the aesthetics and the, um, the risk management strategy that we've evolved on this farm. Well, I think one of the main things a lot of people don't talk about too with um, when you revegetate your farm, it's a much better place to live in. Mm. So, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion around um, a lot of the other benefits. But um, the, over here, I don't know what it's like over in um over where you are but um there is a lot of problem with farmer depression over here um particularly when times are really tough uh, really tough with droughts and things like that and um and if you've got if you've got a really barren windswept windswept sun-baked landscape to go out into to work for the yeah. day it can be pretty depressing whereas we can go out you know and if we're out doing work and it's really hot well we can get ourselves under a tree you know and get a bit of shade if it's really windy we can get behind a plantation and get out of the freezing cold wind in winter or the or the driving rain you know we can get under a tree or behind a plantation so it makes it makes the quality of our working life on the farm a lot better as well and it's just it's just lovely working on a farm that's so beautiful you know you go out into the paddock there's lots of trees there's flowers and whatever else but it's a it's a beautiful place to be, and we get enormous amounts of comments about that about from people that come and visit the farm and, and just say, you know, it's oh, this oh, we've had lots of people say it's like a park. So you know, just having a really nice environment to work in is is a really big thing. It's you can't really place an economic factor on it, but um, you certainly can place an, an emotional and emotional one on. So, in in a sense. I don't know if you received help, financial help for the plantation, etc. But based on your position right now and your experience right now, you would you wouldn't hesitate to invest yourself in tree planting and and riparian buffers, shelter belts, windbreaks, etc. This is a decision as farmers that you think should be can be justified, you know, can be paid for by the farmer himself and, and can be justified in your context. That, that, that's correct, and 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 um, I think. There's been a been a and you mentioned it before. There's been a danger about um, governments giving out subsidies for trees and tree guards, and uh, sometimes that land care approach can end up in the sort of welfare estate mentality, where farmers will only plant when they get a subsidy. So we've taken the view over the last thirty years that we'll make an annual um, 
notation in our budget for tree planting and we'll do that each year and we still do it because we're doing um we're doing habitat enrichment now and that will that will you know just that's like you need to have an annual budget for fencing we'll have an annual budget for planting trees and and our economics uh we we can justify that because we think it's important in terms of um you know how we encourage people to plant trees i suppose that with the Otlager Forestry Network that Ron and I have been involved with and we now have um, over 200 members and we've been going since 1993, our philosophy is to is to focus on the community capacity building, the um, networking and uh, giving farmers confidence and knowledge and share information and have field days and we do peer group mentoring and Rowan evolved the Master Tree Grower Program. We work with that and so that all that any funding we get is all about if you like working with the the software of the whole program and not the hardware and so if if we put the farmer at the center of the decision making so they have ownership of the decision to plant a tree they're the ones who know where they should the trees should go and then surround that farmer with you know community capacity building and good networking and 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 good information good science coming into that with the programs that I was just talking about, that you've got a better chance in the long term of coming up with a a, um, a program which is going to be more robust and resilient in, in, in the future because the farmers will take ownership of what they're doing and start off small and, and build their confidence. And um, we think that's probably the best way. That's how governments should better spend their money um, to try and stimulate you know, activity and interest in these sorts of projects. You know, I've I'm I find that a really fascinating approach because I've already been involved, for example, in Switzerland. Maybe listeners can will get bored of this because I think I've already mentioned this before. But um, I, I I've gotten I've been involved with plantation of agroforestry systems funded by the government, and they basically sell a model. So you have to plant this species in this spacing, um, and with you know this kind of format. They 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 have a very strict kind of model to plant agroforestry or what they call agroforestry. I wouldn't even call it agroforestry. And then, so they, they go out and the farmers take out some very productive land, um, which already there's not a lot of in Switzerland um, because it's all mountains. So they take out this very productive land in the plains and they plant these, these, these um, basically a mix of fruits trees um, uh, that are in French, we call them long tiges. So they're like, you know, tall fruit trees, on vigorous rootstocks, so it'll take years to produce. They'll be very hard to harvest. It's not a fruit orchard, really, nor is it a silver pastoral system because the grass underneath. But I think them, you know, often these farmers they're not cat, they're not actually they don't have sheep or cattle. They're often tree farmers and and grain crop farmers. And then the government is going to pay them every year per tree something like 130 Swiss francs every year for 10 years. And then after 10 years, you know, we were talking a lot with different farmers that are very critical of this technique. And they were saying, well, they're probably just going to rip the trees out. And that's like an approach to funded agroforestry, which goes, which I think is, if I understand correctly, is the complete opposite of what you're doing in the Otway Agroforestry Network, which is, you know, how do, how do you empower farmers into making decisions around trees that will actually contribute to their farm and to their business and to their lifestyle as well, right? It's, it's, so that's quite extreme. Every farm is going to be different, isn't it? Because... Um... You know, the farmers have a different production system, different landscapes, different topography, and different objectives. So it's about 
those farmers working, how can they best fit trees into their system to support their production system and to get all these other values coming from it. And what we found here is that um, some of the areas where we've planted out, such as um, along the riparian zones, um, where there's been erosion, you know, it's bad for agriculture but fantastic for trees, and a lot of those places are low in the landscape, moisture concentration, nutrient concentration, um, a better wind protection as they're low in the landscape, and a great place for trees and a bad place for agriculture. So try and get that matching going. And, you know, most farms you can have 5 or 10 or 15% um, trees on the property in our case nearly up to 20% without compromising a traditional agricultural system. And so you're still getting your production, but you're getting these other values and you're putting the trees where you want to put them, where you think they should go. And uh, and that's the exciting part about it. And then think of the diversity you can build into the system, get all these other values from it and, and some um, productive trees also. So overall, this approach is taken throughout the world. We'd end up with better connected landscapes and um, and more productive and more biodiversity and um, and probably happier farmers. I mean, in the past 10 minutes, you came out with some pretty incredible statements, such as the trees have enabled you to have a carbon actually positive farm. Mm. You've also gone from 3 to 20% tree cover and have not reduced your traditional crop production. Mm. I mean, this is, these are some big statements here that I hope the listeners are not taking lightly because this is some serious achievements and also some serious feedback from, from the field, um, from 30 years of experience actually doing it. You know, this is, this is happening in reality. Um, it's not just, you know, some studies or, or in a book or some theories. So that's, for me, I thought when, when I, you know, when I was reading the documentation you provided, I, that really jumped out and I was really quite impressed. And, and one of the things actually that came up um, when thinking about this, you know, the maintaining this, this productivity, of course, we're talking about, suddenly we're talking about tree and grass interactions. And in agroforestry, we're often trying to understand, you know, how do these interact, especially with eucalyptuses, for example, which in Europe at least are considered to be, you know, everybody is scared of eucalyptuses. Everybody says, you know, eucalyptus will suck up all the moisture from the land and, and nothing grows under eucalyptus. And I don't really have a strong opinion about that because I've seen both cases happen where things were fine and things weren't fine. So, um, but Mike, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to how, what you've observed in terms of, you know, pasture and shelter belt interactions. Do you see the grass greener, more productive, less productive? Does it dry out sooner? What's your experience with this, with this interaction? It, yeah, we certainly have noticed the eucalypts do don't promote growth underneath them, but, um, what we've found is is around the edges of the paddocks where we've put plantations and you've got a lack of pasture and close to the to the base of the trees up to the fence, we've used that as a vehicle runway. So rather than driving across our pasture, which you shouldn't really do for compaction reasons, um, you can drive around the edge. And not only that, it's in winter, it's sucking up the water and it means we can actually get around there, whereas we may not be able to get across the paddock we'll get ourselves bogged because it's too wet. So we can go around the edge where we know the trees mm-hmm. have sucked up a bit of that moisture. There's not a lot of pasture there, so we're not compacting that. But we are finding that because you do get um, a slowing down of the wind, the pasture further out actually will often grow better And um, because you're not getting that wind chill factor as much on the pasture and that slows down growth, obviously, when, when it's cooler. Um, and... Uh, the other one was 
So just a second, uh, Joe, when you say the pasture further out, what do you mean? I'm a bit confused. I mean, the pasture that's closer to the trees after the road? So if you've, if you've got a, a line of trees along, uh, along a plantation in a paddock, and then you've got your fence next to next to your tree plantation, and then just out from the fence for you know maybe five to ten meters, it'll be quite dry and there won't be much pasture if if, if it's a eucalypt plantation that you've got there because they don't that they're they're allelopathic to growth underneath them, so they don't not, not much grows underneath them. But what we've done is instead instead of looking that as as a negative, we haven't got much pasture growth there. We've said, okay, well, we can use that as a vehicle track, and we can get we can get through there in wet weather because we know it won't be as wet there because the trees have sucked up a lot of that moisture. But then further out into the paddock from that, you'll often get better growth because you've got a slowing down of the wind, particularly really cool wind in winter, and that that will promote better growth because the the ground and the pasture and the soil is not getting as as cold from cold winds. And I mean, and certainly also with you know lambing and that sort of thing. Um, so I mean, that that's certainly something that that we've found. And we, the other thing we've also found is um, people. Pe we have quite a few people say to us, "Oh, you're growing all those trees, you end up all the limbs over the fence." Well, if you're doing agroforestry and you're high pruning those trees that are against the fence, you don't end up with limb damage on your fences. So that sort of makes a difference. I mean, obviously, where we're not doing that by pruning, that's not happening. We do get limb damage on the fences that we have to clean up, but the agroforestry plantations certainly don't get that damage. Um, and, and it does provide um, cover for foxes to move through and, and kangaroos, and, and kangaroo numbers are um, getting fairly out of hand over here at the moment. So, um, but... Yeah, we 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 don't really look at that as being a negative, but it certainly it, it certainly does make us look into looking at other species for some of our agroforestry that maybe do grow pasture further up against underneath, depending on where they've been planted on the farm. One of those is silky oak that we've been planting quite a lot of silky oak, and that lets pasture grow right up to underneath. Um, but of course, your trees when you plant your trees in a plant they're always a certain distance back from the fence anyway where you've got your fence so if you don't have pasture there it doesn't matter that's inside the plantation so it's probably better for weed control it's just the bit that you've got outside that fence in your paddock where you're not getting much growth but you know we've um we, we haven't really found that to be too much of a detriment just on, on the point of the competition the um i think this is where we need more research to to find out some of these answers. Um, so as Jill says, there is that competition zone. It's, there has been quite a bit of research in cropping systems, you know, to look at the micro-environmental differences of a crop which has been protected by trees and one which hasn't, where you have less drying, um, more humidity built up, um, more protection. And what has been found there, there's some results show how after you take out the competition zone for the trees and you look at the increased growth further out, like you were saying, which has been measured, that overall, you know, there is an increased production further out from the trees and that um, the balance is that there is actually more crop if you have appropriately designed plantations. But 
in past systems, I haven't seen any research which verifies this, uh, but I guess our gut feel is that it, it probably is happening. Um, and then if you look at our system where we're now producing as much agricultural production as we were um, when we had uh, like when, when we had three percent woody vegetation compared to now we've got say eighteen to twenty percent woody vegetation we we haven't reduced our agricultural output, but there have been other factors there so so obviously the sheep must still be getting uh, the same amount of feed, otherwise we wouldn't have the same production um, but there have been other differences as well in this discussion because we've changed our grazing style, we've changed some of the grazing species, um, and so um, and now we're doing a self-replacing flock, whereas we used to buy buy in. So there there have been other management changes um, along with this. So it's hard to pull out those variables to say <coughs> which is the which are the major causal agents for, for changes or, or maintaining the status quo for, for the grazing system. So it's an area where I think that more research is, more research is required. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Currently reading lots of uh, papers on, on, on these interactions um, as part of a, a, a master's uh, degree that I'm doing. And it's, you know, one of the things that comes out is, is it's, I mean, it changes from species to species, um, from soil type to soil type, from context to context, from season to season as well. It's not so; it's not always so clear. Yeah, the <clears throat> different climate and so on. And that's quite true because here we we um, we can get very um, cold, strong winds, southwesterly winds, and where the trees are, we think are a great benefit for sheltering the sheep. But in other areas, they wouldn't get that. So if we measured ours, it might be different to another environment. That's the sort of thing you're pointing out, I think. And also the style of the shelter belt, you know, how what's the porosity of the shelter belt? How tall is the shelter belt? You know, there, there are a lot of variables involved in this. It's hard to tease out those variables. But you know, I, I suppose to get back to our point that we're still producing what we used to produce and, and um, that's an indicator, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And that's what you're saying and I agree with you. I suppose one thing that we could say is that we've we've got um, far more choice with our lambing paddocks now than we used to. We, you know, there were some of our lambing paddocks where they were really quite exposed, and we and we often wouldn't lamb down in there because of that. So now we've got more choice over the whole farm as to where we can lamb down because we've got better protection over the whole farm. The last kind of small questions that I, I had um, was about tree planting. It's something that, you know, you've planted 50,000 trees. That's a lot of experience as compared to other people. And I had a bit of a question as to how you manage the weeds. So how do you ensure that after the, the tree is planted and you've established it, how do you make sure that they're, you know, you're not managing, you're not weeding by hand some 50,000 trees or however it is that per year that you're planting? Well, most of our trees have been established with um, weed control chemical. So we've had a knockdown and a residual okay. over time. And, um, and sometimes we've gone back and, uh, and have done a second round of weed control. And that's about it. And then we just, once we've had good weed control for 18 months, we just let them go. 
but now we're, we're trying to use uh, yeah. other techniques so don't have to use chemical and using weed mat and we're experimenting with different ways of, of doing that now. So that's probably it in a nutshell. It's it's more labour intensive certainly though when you don't when you don't use the chemical. Um, you know, we're having to dig dig away an area and then put a weed mat down, plant into that, and then we're having to put um, you know, wire holders to, around the edge of the weed mat so it just doesn't get pushed up with the weed. So it is it is more time consuming, but we like the fact that we're not using Roundup. That makes sense. But also the the challenge of the efficiency there is huge. Yeah, it is. It's right. much quicker. You can get a lot more trees than if you if you're using a spray than if you're using weed matting. But I mean, we're 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 sort of to the stage now where we're not planting huge amounts of trees like we were. We we're planting thousands per year. Was now we're putting in, you know, hundreds mm. per year. So so I suppose we've got a little bit more time. We've got mm. lots of people turn up to help. So we you know we have crews. We have someone putting in putting on milk cartons, we have someone digging away the, the grass and stuff and then someone putting the weed mat down and someone putting the wires and so you've got lots of people there and, you know, you can do it. And it, it, is, it is nice to know we're not using that chemical anymore because, you know, it's not, not got a good, good uh, um, what do you call it, you know, what Roundup's not, not got a good reputation at the moment. And it's it's but it's a short term cost for a long term benefit as well. If you look at the cost benefit, if we can go without it, that's great. But if we look at you know being able to plant more trees and just use it once or twice, it seems like it's also you know through the lifetime of the of the tree, which could be fifty years, it seems like um, um, an interesting approach as well. Interesting. Okay, I, that's what I wanted to check with you uh, on that, and uh, just to have a bit of a of an understanding of how you manage that because it's one of the biggest management problems that we come across. It's how to manage the weeds after the trees are in. It's quite, it's much easier to get a tree in than it is to, to manage, to make sure that it survives and to, and to, you know, make sure that the weeds don't overcome it. So, so that's fantastic. Um, I really, it was a fascinating conversation. Um, extremely interesting. We talked about some, 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 yeah, you brought up some great elements to the conversation, really contributing to our, our understanding of agroforestry over here. So a huge thank you. Thank you. It's yeah, okay. Well, thanks for taking interest in our project, Dimitri. It's, I think it's a wonderful thing with the communication that we can talk to you when you're uh, over in Portugal there. And, um, and it's, it's great that we can, you know, we've shared some of your ideas too, and I'll be watching, um, connecting with your, um, Regenerative Agroforestry Program to pick up on other interviews that you've done. And we're really, Jill was saying, oh, when we go on our holiday, we're going to play the, I was saying, we've got all these podcasts. Put your podcasts on Dimitri and have a listen to them. All these things from around the world. (laughs) We're going to be listening to those as we're driving around Australia camping. And so you're connecting with us, reconnecting with you. And isn't that a fantastic thing that we can share this information and share our stories? Because I know you've got some wonderful stories that in those podcasts um, that we're looking forward to. To hearing and uh, and if we can be part of that, we'll, we're delighted to uh, be part of that as well. And I, I will just add one other thing, saying that about the carbon neutrality is that because we're managing you know, roughly half our trees for for um, saw logs and for um, commercial products, we are trying to maximise the growth, you know, with spacing and species selection, and getting far more carbon sequestered than those trees which we may harvest one day compared to a normal land care planting so therefore 
we're reaching carbon neutrality at say about eighteen percent of our landscape. Whereas if it was just all traditional uh, land care planning, it would be a lot higher. So there's another advantage of actually managing those trees um, for agroforestry because even if you don't harvest them, your carbon sequestration is going to be better for the farm system. And our daughter, she buys lambs off us and sells them with a special marketing program. She sells a farm story with the meat and carbon neutrality and being carbon positive is one of those stories. So there are those other spin-offs in the future for our maybe our niche marketing by managing the trees to maximise the growth and sequester more carbon and reach carbon neutrality at a lower percentage in the landscape. So that's, I think, an interesting point. I suppose another point to add to that too is that um, actively grown trees sequester more carbon. So if you're... If you are cutting down and replacing and growing all the time, you're going to sequester more carbon because, you know, trees reach a state where they're static and they're not absorbing more carbon. So if you've got a cycle going all the time, Mm. you're absorbing more carbon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media. We're waiting for you there and see you next time.